Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 120, Space Shuttle Flight 48, STS-50. Space Lab Goes the Distance. Last time, we talked about the first flight of Space Shuttle Endeavour, STS-49. Already expected to be an incredibly complex mission, it soon became one of the craziest flights I've ever read about. With four EVAs, including the only three-person EVA in history as of 2020, STS-49 claimed new records that would not be surpassed for years to come. Today's flight will break records of its own, but in a considerably less flashy manner. Today's flight is a space lab mission, using one of the pressurized space lab modules to carry a cutting-edge laboratory in the back of Columbia. This will be the sixth space lab flight carrying a pressurized module in the payload bay of a shuttle, so it's understandable if they're starting to blend together a bit. With all the myriad experiments carried in each laboratory module, and with some of those experiments flying multiple times, it's not easy to keep track, but there have been differences. One thing to pay attention to is what the overall scientific focus of each flight is, and which country is taking the lead. With today's mission, Space Lab will contain the United States Microgravity Lab, or USML. And since it's the first flight of USML, it's called USML-1. As the name implied, this payload was primarily by and for the United States. This may seem like a silly distinction since it's the space shuttle, but if you think back, space lab missions typically have a lot of international involvement. This makes sense since the European Space Agency actually built the pressurized space lab module, but with a space station drawing closer and closer, the U.S. needed to start getting into the nitty-gritty of how, exactly, science would work on the new orbiting facility. So, as we've seen with a number of flights, this mission aims to accomplish some concrete goals in the present, but with a firm eye towards learning and planning for the future. Commanding this flight was Dick Richards, who we last saw commanding STS-41, which sent the Ulysses space probe on its way. Back on the ground, Richards bemoaned the fact that after all the months and years of training, his two flights had lasted only five days and four days. Well, be careful what you wish for, because on this flight, we'll be breaking the shuttle flight duration record. This is Richards' third of four flights. Joining Richards at the front of the flight deck was our pilot for today's mission, Ken Bowersox. Kenneth Bowersox was born on November 14, 1956 in Portsmouth, Virginia but he would tell you that his hometown is Bedford, Indiana. Bowersox earned a bachelor's in aerospace engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy and a master's in mechanical engineering from Columbia, before heading off to learn how to fly. He served on the USS Enterprise, flying the A-7E. He continued on to the Air Force's test pilot school at Edwards, adding the F-18 to his repertoire. And that's where NASA found him in 1987. We'll be seeing Bowersox for a while, since this is his first of five flights, including a stint commanding the ISS and several high-level roles in NASA management. In the back right of the flight deck, we find Mission Specialist 1, Bonnie Dunbar. We've actually seen Dunbar a few times now, most recently on STS-32, the LDEF retrieval flight. Dunbar actually played a big role in making this mission happen in the first place. As she tells it in an oral history interview, after the Challenger accident, a bunch of studies were set up to look at the future of the space shuttle. Dunbar was tasked with looking at what sort of planning and preparation was required to perform material science on a future space station. Her work on that study paid off, because it spawned this flight and earned her the role of payload commander. Again, the payload commander's job is to wrangle all the experiments, scientists, and astronauts involved with the laboratory in the back of the orbiter, leaving the flying to the pilot crew. 
With so many experiments, a limited amount of time to train, and an even more limited amount of time on orbit, it's a careful balancing act that takes years of planning. This is Dunbar's third of five flights. Mission Specialist 2, helping the pilot crew keep an eye on the orbiter for this flight, was Ellen Baker. We last saw Baker on STS-34, which deployed the Galileo probe. We'll see her one more time, since this is her second of three flights. Typically for the ride back home, Mission Specialists 1 and 3 will swap places. So while Bonnie Dunbar was on the flight deck for Ascent, for the light show of re-entry, that seat belonged to Mission Specialist 3, Carl Meade. We last saw Meade on STS-38, which was a classified Department of Defense flight, so who knows what he was up to. This is his second of three flights. Joining Meade down on the mid-deck are two payload specialists. Payload specialist 1 was Larry DeLucas. Lawrence DeLucas was born on July 11, 1950 in Syracuse, New York. DeLucas holds a number of degrees. Bachelors and Masters in Chemistry, Bachelors of Physiological Optics, and Doctorates, plural, in Optometry and Biochemistry. That's a lot of school. He is the Principal Investigator of the Protein Crystal Growth Glove Box Experiment on this flight, which is his one and only trip into space. Payload Specialist 2 was Gene Trin. Eugene Trin was born on September 14, 1950 in Saigon, Vietnam. At a young age, his family moved to France before later moving to the United States when Trin was 18 years old. Trin also had his fair share of degrees, including a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD, all in applied physics. He was a backup payload specialist for STS-51B way back in 1985 and had to sit tight for another seven years for his chance to fly. This is his only spaceflight. When launch day arrived for STS-50, no major problems arose during the countdown, though that famous Florida weather did its thing again. When the scheduled liftoff time came and went, the crew remained firmly on the pad due to the potential lightning risk in the area. After a five and a half minute delay, instead of lightning, we're lighting Columbia's main engines and SRBs, lifting off on June 25th, 1992 at 12.12pm local time. At first glance, Ascent went nice and smoothly with no big issues. One minor problem that popped up was one of the Ohm's engine nozzles yawed slightly out of position. During the ride uphill, it moved 0.24 degrees, even though it wasn't supposed to move more than 0.2 degrees. The concern with this was that if it moved too far, the nozzle could be impacted by superheated airflow during re-entry. But as usual, the margins were set to be pretty conservative, and a redundant backup system was ready to push the nozzle back if it strayed 0.7 degrees out of position. Also, I just want to say that I'm impressed that the vehicle and airflow are predictable enough that half a degree is the difference between safe and a potential problem. Another anomaly during Ascent barely even rated a small note in the mission report, but 11 years later would come to be seen as a warning. At some point during Columbia's ride to orbit, a piece of insulating foam broke off of the area on the external tank near the bipod that supported the front of the orbiter. The lightweight foam carried in the airflow impacted Columbia's thermal protection system just below the critical leading edge of its wing, damaging several tiles. In fact, while it doesn't seem to have made direct impact with the leading edge of the wing, technicians did later find several white streaks on the tough but brittle material. According to an oral history interview with Mission Commander Dick Richards, it was not the first time that foam from that particular area had come loose. And as we know now, it will not be the last. 
11 years later, in a nearly identical set of circumstances, a piece of foam will break off of the same area, but instead of juking just below the leading edge of the wing, the foam would slam right through it, dooming the crew of STS-107. This incident is especially chilling, since the foam impact on STS-50 was not observed directly due to the overcast conditions of the launch. It was inferred from analysis of the heat shield damage and from photos of the external tank taken by the crew. But the crew took those photos on film cameras. The images were not downlinked to the ground. If an accident similar to STS-107 had happened, who knows if the true cause would ever have been known with certainty. But for now, the crew got lucky. The foam did no serious damage, and we can return our attention to the mission at hand. Columbia was probably happy to feel the lack of wind over its wings again, since it had been down for maintenance for the previous six months. A major feature of that maintenance was that Columbia now had the required plumbing and wiring hookups for the extended duration orbiter equipment. Back during shuttle development, the assumption was that shuttle flights would typically only be a few days in duration. But with a slower than planned flight rate and with no space station to perform long duration experiments, shuttle missions started to get longer and longer. But since the shuttle is powered by fuel cells, and fuel cells require hydrogen and oxygen to run, the missions could only go for so long. Extended Duration Orbiter, or EDO, was a way around that. Loaded into the back of Columbia's payload bay, right in front of the aft bulkhead, was a vertical pallet of spherical tanks containing extra hydrogen and oxygen. More reactants meant more electricity, which meant longer missions. Endeavor also had the equipment required for EDO, and even went one further. It was capable of accepting two pallets, though it never flew like that. But fuel cell reactants aren't the only limited resource on a shuttle flight. Columbia also carried extra tanks of nitrogen, which makes up the majority of the air in the crew cabin. It also carried extra canisters of lithium hydroxide, which is used to remove carbon dioxide from the cabin environment. You may remember lithium hydroxide canisters from their famous square peg round hole problem on Apollo 13. But changing out the canisters all the time is such a hassle. What if we didn't have to do that? Well... That's what we brought this new system along for, the Regenerable CO2 Removal Subsystem, or RCRS. Fun fact, this acronym sort of broke my brain since I kept mixing it up with the Rate Stabilization Control System, or RSCS, from Project Mercury. RSCS, RCRS, so many acronyms. Using some advanced chemistry I don't really understand, the RCRS could pull carbon dioxide out of the air and then dump it overboard. No consumable cartridges required. Pretty handy. With extended duration orbiter systems helping out, the target for STS-50 was just under 13 days, which would break the previous record of just under 11 days set by STS-32. A flight of this length would do a few things. First, obviously, it would give the crew more time to work on their experiments. And with crystal growth once again on the menu, that made a difference. Some crystals researchers were interested in growing really took their time about it. On shorter flights, compromises had to be made to force faster growth. With 13 days, they could just let the crystals do their own thing, improving quality. The lengthy flight would also be a good test for the EDO systems, which could unlock still longer missions down the road. And it would also help to plan out operations on the space station, still being called Space Station Freedom at this point. Sure, we had a good chunk of space station experience on Skylab, but that was 20 years ago and a lot has changed. By carefully watching how this mission went, NASA could learn about reasonable workloads, 
what to expect from the group dynamics of so many people working so hard in close proximity for so long, and how to ensure that any problems that arose could be avoided on the space station. Of course, such a long flight also came with its own set of problems. With the extra pressurized volume provided by Spacelab, the shuttle was fairly big, especially compared to the old days in the 1960s. But it's not that big, especially with seven people. Seven people who don't have showers. So the crew would be checking for microbes and fungus throughout the flight, keeping an eye out for anything dangerous that might start growing on the walls. I'm sure that effort wasn't helped by the fact that all crew members were required to exercise. Thirteen days is a long time to go without using any muscles, so everyone had to suck it up and put some time in on the special vibration-isolated exercise equipment. All of that planned time on orbit would center around the equipment currently occupying the Space Lab pressurized module, U.S. Microgravity Lab 1. 31 experiments, along with computers, storage, and other support equipment, lined the walls of the 7-meter-long module. Somehow it doesn't seem like all that much at first, but if you imagine a wall that's 14 meters long, nearly 50 feet, packed to the gills with experiments and consoles, it's kind of overwhelming. Not for payload commander Bonnie Dunbar, though. Four and a half hours into the mission, Dunbar opened the hatch into Space Lab and began starting stuff up. While Bonnie gets to work activating the equipment, I'll take a moment to relay something interesting that she said in an oral history interview. If you're anything like me, you've probably looked at a couple of these flights and some of the credentials of the crew and wondered if we really need somebody with like 14 PhDs to hit a button on a crystal experiment or bang on a satellite. But Dunbar explained the benefit of having someone with deep expertise in the subject area, even if the experiment itself doesn't necessarily require it. As she described it, if you have an astronomy experiment, you might not need an astronomer to actually operate it on orbit. But if you do have an astronomer, then when you're still on the ground preparing the experiment, they actually know what's going on. They can speak the same language as the scientists designing the experiment, and they can provide input on how to accomplish their goals. And if something does go wrong, they're more likely to be able to help get it back on the rails. So with time and space being so rare and valuable, and plenty of people that have like 14 PhDs willing to fly, it makes sense to work with the best of the best. As I mentioned, this flight carried 31 experiments, some of which we've seen before, so I'm not going to rattle off the entire list. It would get pretty boring pretty fast. Instead, I'll touch on a few interesting points about a few of the experiments in whatever order caught my eye. First, yes, we've got crystals again. This is actually the 14th shuttle flight where we're growing crystals. What can I say? Apparently when it comes to growing crystals, space is the place. One notable aspect of these crystal experiments is that payload specialist Larry DeLucas is a crystal expert, and the equipment was designed to accommodate changes on the fly, so DeLucas could actually react to how things are going in real time and ensure a better outcome for his experiment. So, that's pretty cool. One set of crystal experiments used a specialized new furnace called the Crystal Growth Furnace. This furnace enabled extremely high temperature experiments and was specially designed to allow conditions near true zero gravity. Wait, what? Haven't we been in zero gravity this whole time? Actually, this is one of those situations where different terms that mean different things are sort of used interchangeably, but there is a difference between zero gravity, weightlessness, and microgravity. We're used to seeing astronauts floating around while in space and thinking of it as a zero-gravity environment. After all, gravity comes from the Earth, 
the astronauts are not on the Earth, so there's no gravity. Right? No. This, of course, is nonsense. The whole reason that the shuttle keeps going around and around the Earth is due to gravity. In fact, even up in low Earth orbit, gravity is around 90% as strong as it is on the surface. And actually, no matter where you go in the universe, you're going to encounter some gravity. All mass experiences gravity. So the term zero gravity, while a convenient shorthand, sort of confuses the situation. Okay, fine. What about weightlessness? Again, basically the same problem. Weight is just a function of your mass and the local gravity field, so it's just a different way of saying zero gravity. It's useful for podcast hosts who are trying to avoid saying the same word over and over and over again, but otherwise, no good. The correct term to use here is microgravity. NASA makes a point to use this term, and if you've been paying unreasonably close attention, you may have noticed that I've been trying to use this term more and more myself. I know this seems like a weird tangent on a really minor detail, but that's sort of what I'm all about, so allow me to explain why it makes a difference. Let's say that you're trying to grow a giant crystal. Ideally, you'd be in an environment that was completely devoid of outside influences. No forces tugging on it, no vibrations jostling it around, nothing. Well, unfortunately, you're growing a crystal in the real universe, on the space shuttle, in low Earth orbit. What can we do to make this as close as possible to your ideal? First, you politely ask the pilot crew to keep the orbiter in a gravity-gradient-stabilized attitude. Okay, that's fine. The tail is now pointed downwards towards the Earth, and the nose is now pointed straight up out to space. The slight differences in Earth's gravitational pull on the tail and the nose ensure that you stay in a nice, stable attitude without all those loud thrusters banging around and shaking the whole thing. Next, make sure that you've isolated anything that vibrates the orbiter, at least as much as is practical. This explains the shock absorbers on the exercise equipment. All those efforts mean that the orbiter is as smooth and as quiet as possible, but you're still going to have some problems. The orbiter is in a stable attitude with respect to the horizon, but it's still whizzing around the world. That means that, really, it's tumbling end over end every 90 minutes or so, always keeping its tail pointed to the ground. So, if you were precisely at the center of mass of the orbiter, it would look like it was rotating around you. That's great if you're at the center of mass, but if you're not, you essentially have a very slow centrifuge. Remember Ken Mattingly waking up on the ceiling of the flight deck when he tried to sleep up there on STS-4? Same idea. Okay, fine. So we put our most sensitive experiments as close as possible to the center of mass of the orbiter. We could keep listing off these minor perturbations forever, eventually including stuff like the slight gravitational pull of Neptune or something, but there's just one more that I want to mention. Columbia is in a low Earth orbit, where there's still enough atmosphere to make a difference. The shuttle is flying through extremely thin air that is nevertheless very gradually slowing it down, decelerating it. Imagine slamming on the brakes of your car with a cup of coffee in your hand, but, you know, slower. The coffee's going to move around. So to help mitigate this slight deceleration from atmospheric drag, the furnace has the cylindrical crystal samples actually aligned with the direction of flight. That way, the crystal is affected by the drag deceleration in a predictable direction, chosen to disrupt it the least. By carefully tracking all these outside influences and mitigating them one by one, researchers hoped to keep perturbing forces down to one ten millionth of the normal force of gravity on Earth. That's ten times better than literal microgravity. 
Okay, I probably could have said all of that more succinctly, but I love that kind of stuff. Layers and layers of clever solutions all working together to accomplish something that once seemed impossible. Another set of experiments took advantage of the zero I mean microgravity environment to study the dynamics of fluid droplets. To do this precisely and without disruptions caused by some outside tool, the droplets were moved around using precisely generated sound waves. By very carefully bouncing sound waves around inside the test chamber, the crew could create standing waves, which could be used to control the motion of the droplets. To visualize this, imagine that two people are swinging a long jump rope. If they were mimicking normal sound waves, both people would just sort of wiggle the ends of their rope all over the place, making a chaotic pattern. But if they worked together, they would trace out a big oblong shape, sort of like an American football, and a person can jump around inside of that shape. If the rope swingers go faster, they can split that shape into two sort of rope bubbles that can have people jumping around in them, with the center of the rope staying still. The rope swingers have built a standing wave using the rope. The stationary part of the rope in the center is called a node. In this analogy, the droplets are the people jumping around in between the nodes. The analogy breaks down a little since in real jump rope, if the person strays too far, they'll hit the rope and they'll just stop it. But with our droplet, it just sort of gets gently guided back to where it was. But what's really cool about this is that the sound waves could then be changed to move those nodes around, and thus move the droplets around, all without touching them. They're basically using sound instead of magic to levitate things around. The crew were able to document the dynamics of stuff like spinning one drop until it breaks into two, the merging of different drop sizes, drops of different materials inside each other like an egg and a yolk, or the effects of surface tension on all of the above. This had all sorts of benefits. For spacecraft manufacturers, better understanding how their propellants and coolants will behave will allow them to design better spacecraft. Pharmaceutical companies had big ideas about encapsulating fluids in special membranes for medications, all without any machinery touching it. And it also allowed scientists to probe aspects of fluid dynamics theories that were difficult or impossible to test on the ground. Pretty cool stuff. One last experiment that I'll mention was laying the groundwork for one day growing plants in space. Specifically, it was testing systems for reliably delivering water and nutrients to plants, but wasn't actually flying any plants just yet. They wanted to take it step by step. The main reason I mention this is just because I thought the description in the press kit was sort of funny. It says, quote, Increases in the duration of space shuttle missions have made it necessary to develop plant growth technology that minimizes the cost of life support while in space, end quote. Necessary seems like a strong word here. I mean, we did bring the EDO palette for a reason, and I don't see the ISS covered in plants. Someday, though. Someday. One thing that Bonnie Dunbar mentioned in her oral history interview stood out to me. I'm not sure if this was done on previous flights, but she mentioned how on this flight, at least, the crew tried to schedule four hours of communication time with the researchers on the ground who had designed the onboard experiments. With four hours of voice, video, and the crew's attention, they could ensure that the experiments were proceeding as expected and could help the crew in real time if any issues arose. I would guess that this tight feedback loop was incredibly useful, allowing researchers to make slight changes during the mission rather than having to wait years for another chance to fly their experiment. As we've seen on other Space Lab missions, the crew were split into shifts to enable 24-hour operation, 
and also split up into a payload and an orbiter team. Commander Richards, perhaps feeling lonely up on the flight deck, drifted back to Space Lab to see what the payload team were up to. Unfortunately for Richards, he unknowingly violated a rule set down by payload commander Dunbar. No coffee in the lab. And of course, despite seven days of no coffee problems so far, Richards managed to spill his coffee in the lab. I'm not sure how that works in microgravity, but he found a way. As he tells it, Dunbar shot him a look that he interpreted as, Will you please go back up to the flight deck and go do your shuttle stuff? Don't mess with the payload commander in her lab. Despite the complexity and number of experiments, life aboard Columbia proceeded nice and smoothly. But you just know that I dug up an interesting problem for you. Around 25 hours into the mission, the RCRS started hitting some issues. This again is the new device that would pull CO2 out of the cabin air and dump it overboard. After it shut down six times, the crew deactivated it, and the ground got to work on a fix. There were plenty of lithium hydroxide canisters on board, so this wasn't a mission-ending problem, but it was hoped that this device would be useful on future long missions, so the ground and crew got to work getting it running again. Probably happy for something to do on such a long flight with so little maneuvering, Commander Richards and Pilot Bowersox jumped into the repair effort. The teleprinter was soon spitting out the 30-something step process to attempt the repair. First, they had to disassemble a number of lockers on the mid-deck, then pull up some floor panels, then actually start cutting and splicing electrical cabling. But their nearly five-hour effort paid off when the RCRS started working again. Pretty impressive. Oh, and just to return to a The Space Above Us favorite, the reason that the teleprinter was used instead of tags was, you guessed it, tags had jammed. No tags. Life on a space shuttle mission can be intense. For a lot of people, it's the culmination of decades of dreaming and years of training, all for a few brief days to get as much done as possible. It's easy to fall into a pattern of just trying to power through your exhaustion and accomplish the mission. In fact, one of the payload specialists encountered some shoulder pain while working in the glove box. Cognizant of the running clock, he tried to ignore the pain and just keep working but the pain soon got so bad that he physically couldn't carry on and had to ask for help with his equipment. In fact, as Richards tells it, he believes that this payload specialist actually required surgery after the flight to help treat his shoulder. When the stakes are high, people will do crazy things. And, you know, maybe for a four-day mission, that's doable. But as days turn into weeks, the crew was going to hit a wall. To try to prevent that, this mission featured something almost unheard of in space— Scheduled free time. Each crew member would have half a day to themselves to unwind, enjoy the view, and probably catch a nap. In addition to the half day off, Commander Richards also had an inviolable rule that he believed was critical to keeping people sane. A bedtime. As he tells it, he informed the crew, quote, I don't care if the lab is coming unglued. You better train the guy that's going to relieve you, because even if that's your experiment, you're going to bed. A well-rested crew is a safe and productive one. Most of the intense work fell onto the payload crew, who were responsible for squeezing out as much science as possible from their numerous experiments. The orbiter crew of Richards, Bowersox, and Baker had a pretty quiet flight. One thing that occupied Richards' time was our old favorite, the Shuttle Amateur Radio Experiment, or SAREX. Richard spent a good chunk of his oral history interview talking about his adventures with Sarex, but two moments jumped out at me. 
In one, he encountered a guy down in Argentina who contacted the shuttle a few times. It turned out, the guy had the ability to patch his radio setup into the public phone network and asked Richards if there was anybody he wanted to call. Richards had the idea that it'd be pretty funny to call his wife on her cell phone from orbit. The Argentinian radio operator got everything set up, placed the call, and her phone was turned off. Womp womp. Another interesting opportunity presented itself when Mission Control informed Richards that somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean was a team of sailors in a traditional Polynesian ship, attempting to sail from Hawaii to French Polynesia using ancient navigational techniques. And while they were using ancient techniques, they still had a radio on board and would love to chat. Richards waited for the orbit to line up and hailed the sailing vessel from the orbiter. And for a few minutes, there was a connection between the two ships each representing the pinnacle of technology in their day. Richards asked how the crew was doing, and they said they were pretty bummed since there was no wind, so all they could do was wait around. They asked Richards if he could see any weather from his lofty perch. He looked around, and sure enough, he could see a bunch of whitecaps about 100 miles north. He told the crew, and they were delighted to hear that a front was moving in. The next day, Richards contacted them again, and the happy crew were sailing once again. In gratitude, they invited the astronaut and his wife on a sailing trip when they got back, which Richards quickly took them up on. After breaking the record for longest shuttle flight, I'm sure that the crew were more than ready to head home, but they're going to have to wait just a little bit longer. With Space Lab in the back, the orbiter was a little heavy, so there was a strong desire to land at Edwards. Unfortunately, there was a hurricane off the coast of California that complicated those efforts. I believe that Mission Control was just worried about normal wind and rain, but Commander Richards had recently learned that powerful bursts of lightning can actually blast out of the top of thunderstorms, reaching pretty high altitudes. He was concerned what the effects of punching an ionized plasma tunnel through the air right above a hurricane, basically a giant thunderstorm, might be. So he was pretty relieved when the call was made to wait a day and see if the weather improved. During their day off, the hard-worked crew got to relax and enjoy the views out the windows. Payload specialist DeLucas was taking photos of the Earth when his camera ran out of film, so he drifted down to the airlock, which they were treating sort of like a closet, to find another role. Eventually, the crew noticed that he hadn't come back. Bonnie Dunbar went searching for him, and in the airlock, sticking out of the endless bags of equipment, she found two feet and white socks sticking out. DeLucas had fallen asleep. Dunbar explained that in weightlessness, you're already sort of in a neutral body position, so it's pretty easy to fall asleep. After nearly two weeks of 12-hour shifts, I guess DeLucas could use it. The next day, the weather at Edwards still wasn't great, so Columbia blazed a trail in the sky towards the Kennedy Space Center, a first for this particular orbiter. After a gentle touchdown and showing off its fancy new drag parachute, OV-102 rolled to a stop, and the shuttle duration bar had been raised. 13 days, 19 hours, 31 minutes, and 2 seconds. It was easily the longest shuttle flight so far, but we're just getting started. So with STS-50 in the books, what do we get? This is actually the sort of mission that I had in mind when I first started this podcast. The central premise of this show was to test a hypothesis I had, that there's no such thing as a boring space mission. I doubt that most of you had ever heard of this flight. It didn't create any crazy photos, it didn't execute a hair-raising rendezvous, it didn't land on the moon or anything like that. But it made tangible progress towards a productive and useful space station. It conducted a bunch of useful science research. 
it further expanded the envelope of the shuttle's capability, and it did it all while the crew stayed sane and even had a little fun. In fact, it's sort of the opposite of our previous flight, STS-49. STS-49 did a whole bunch of really exciting stuff, but it was sort of a dead end. We don't rescue commercial satellites using improvised plans essentially sketched on a napkin anymore. STS-50 was, I think it's fair to say, less exciting, even if I think it was exciting, but I see its influence all over the current day-to-day operations on the ISS, almost 30 years later. Funny how that works out sometimes. Next time, Atlantis will drop off a satellite that probably shouldn't be immersed in water to figure out its volume, and we'll deploy an experiment that Dark Helmet will be proud of. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.